Welcome, everybody, to the brand new series here called Kingdom Come. Uh, this series is our, is our way of leading up into Christmas. And by the way, uh, Christmas at Encounter this year, we're going to have three identical services. It expands every year, which is why we're doing this. Two on Sunday morning at our usual times, 9.15 and 10.45. And then a third one on Monday, Christmas Eve, at 4 p.m. And we're doing something a little special uh, to help you invite your friends and your neighbors as we get ready to celebrate Christmas. Christmas is to, uh, we're selling tickets online at grandrapidschristmas.com and the tickets are free. So it's really more like reserving your tickets and it kind of helps us uh, balance things out a little bit on the planning side, but also to like build excitement, enthusiasm over what God is going to do here over that Christmas weekend. For every ticket that's reserved online, we're providing a meal for a family of four who needs it. Uh, right here in West Michigan through our friends at the pantry. And so go online, grandrabschristmas.com. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, your family members, reserve those tickets, and at the same time, help provide a meal for a family in need this Christmas season. Um, it's also a great way to celebrate this upside-down kind of kingdom that Jesus came. See what I did there? I'm tying it back into the kingdom come sort of message. Uh, we celebrate as Christians Christmas time for a lot of reasons. But Christmas for Christians is more than presents and Santa Claus, although that's fun. Christmas for Christians is more even than celebrating just the, the spirit of generosity or the spirit of giving this holiday season. Christmas for Christians is more than all of that because Christmas for Christians is celebrating the welcoming of a king and along with it, his kingdom. And so what we're doing throughout this series leading up to Christmas is taking a look at how best we can live into the kingdom that Jesus brought with him by going to a place, probably the most explicit place he told us about the kingdom in his world-famous Sermon on the Mount. And as we begin the Sermon on the Mount study today, we're going to hear a passage that's often called the Beatitudes, which is a little bit of a peculiar way to start off this world-famous message because we start off with the word blessed. And we kind of like lose a lot of the meaning and the context around that word blessed. And so we're going to try to rebuild, about reclaim what Jesus meant by that terminology. And I'll start off by just saying, I think that what Jesus was getting at when he's talked about the blessed life probably isn't what many of us think. The blessed life for Jesus was the kind of life that you and I, we've always longed to live. The kind of life we've always wanted to live. When Jesus describes the blessed life, see, I don't, I don't think he has in mind the kind of life where you're like sailing from island to island on your own personal yacht. I don't think, like not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just like, I don't think that's exactly what he has in mind first when he thinks about the blessed life, the kind of life you've always longed to live. And I think he's onto something because after all, Jesus is the one who spoke into the nothing, spoke into the void, and he made each and every one of us. So it might be fair to say that he knows us better than we know ourselves. When Jesus is talking about the blessed life, the kind of life you've always longed to live, he means this in a kind of way that doesn't depend on fame, doesn't depend on money, doesn't depend on influence, doesn't depend on comfort or security. The blessed life, the life that you've always longed to live for Jesus is radically accessible and open to everybody. The blessed life, the kind of life that you've always longed to live, 
according to Jesus, is a life that's open to anybody who have just absolutely train wrecked your life. It's a kind of life that's open to anybody who've experienced setbacks and struggles, despair and depression. It's the kind of life that's open to anybody who's gone through divorce or single parenthood. It's the kind of life, it's the kind of life open to anybody that's sort of meandering, wandering through life, not really having a purpose or direction to it at all. The blessed life, the kind of life you've always wanted to live is open to somebody even like Mabel. Tom Schmidt in his book, A Scandalous Beauty, tells the story about when he met Mabel. It was, it was in a convalescent hospital, the basement corridors, walking through the hallways, that he looked down one particular hallway and he saw one particular woman in despair, Mabel. She was in her late 90s, and the large hearing aid over her left ear indicated she was nearly deaf. Her starkly white pupils indicated she was likely blind. She had this cancer eating away at the side of her face. It caused open sores that ran. She drooled constantly. It rearranged the features of her face. Uh, Tom would learn later on two things about Mabel. The first thing was that the hospital would actually send newly minted nurses to care for her first because the thought was, if you could care for Mabel, you could probably care for any other person in this hospital. And the second thing he learned about Mabel is that she lived the life that you and I have always wanted to live. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount, the way that it begins in the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, the words are going to be on the screen behind me as well. It starts off that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. Pause. Pause because Matthew is writing now mostly to Jews and we're kind of like snooping and we're listening as non-Jewish people, but there's a couple of things that they would have picked up on that we wouldn't normally pick up on, that I wouldn't pick up on. It's kind of funny how you read the Bible enough times and you start to notice these trends and these patterns that you didn't really get the first time reading it through. Or in my case, you'll read the writings of people who've read the Bible so many times that I didn't really get the first time through. But now after, you know, you read those things and you start to go back and you start to see it, is that every time, listen to me, Every time God wants to call his people, radically bring his people back to the, to the first priorities, the first things, what matters most, every time he wants to do that, he does that on a mountain. You can kind of go back through scripture and you start to see these, these trends kind of start to develop that start to mean something when we get to the, the life of Jesus and we see the significance that's happening here. So little, little like history of the Bible, history of God's people, the Israelites, after they were brought out of Egypt, remember the, the 10 plagues, there's a movie about that one, they came out into the wilderness and they came before the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses went up on top of the mountain, remember, and he got the 10 commandments and he brought them down. 10 commandments is this instruction to God's people, this is how you should live. And it was ground shaking, it was earth shattering for, for the people to be called back. This is what the central priorities of our life are now going to orbit and are now going to revolve around. 
Of course, after the Sinai and the Ten Commandments, God had them go into the modern-day Israel. Uh, back then, it was Canaan as their promised land. And as they went through, they fought a couple of battles. The first one was the Battle of Jericho. They didn't so much fight that one as they marched around it, and then God did all the fighting because the walls just came a-tumbling down, and they just sort of like took it. They just walked in, and it was theirs. After they went through Jericho, they came to the foot of a mountain, two of them, in fact, they, Mount uh, Ebor and Gerizim. And they went, to the center, they went to the base of the mountain and God said, this is how you're going to live in the land that I'm giving you now. These are your first priorities to revolve around. And so long as you do that, you can stay in the land. Spoiler alert, they didn't. <laughs> they gave up on God. And so God said, you're going to be pulled away for a time, time of exile. But when they came back, Ezra, the prophet, gathered on another mountain, Mount Zion this time, and he read the entire law, the entire Old Testament of the Bible, basically, and said, reorient your life around these, our first principles, and you'll live long in the land that God is re-gifting you here today. And then Jesus, who's been this boy genius teaching in the synagogues and the religious places, teaching the teachers. And then Jesus, who's been healing and then Jesus, who's been attracting these crowds, gathers together. Jesus, what does he do? He goes up onto a mountainside and he sits down, the place of authority to speak from, like a king on his throne sits, or like the Pope speaking ex cathedra from the seat, it's Latin, on a mountainside. And immediately the Jewish listeners are going, I know what's happening. God is just about to give us these defining points that we will be reorienting our lives around for millennia. This is the, the significance of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus opened his mouth, and verse 2, he began to teach them. Now, this is important. It's important that we understand who the them is, uh, because it makes a difference in what the teaching is about if we think about who the them is, is the them the crowd? No, the them is the disciples. So, so we've got a couple of different groups of people in the room right now. And I just want to be open about that and honest about it. We've got people in the room who are committed Christians who have handed over your life to Jesus and say, you are better at running my life than I am. My life is now yours for the taking. And I know that we have people in the room who aren't quite sure yet. And you're here because you're wondering, or you're watching online or listening online because you're wondering, and you want to know more, and you want to engage deeper, but you want to know what it's like. And I want to just be honest this morning and to say, this teaching that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount, it isn't for the doubters and it isn't for the skeptics. This teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is like how Christians ought to live. How Christians can embrace this kingdom that the King Jesus brought with him. How Christians can live that full, weighty, blessed kind of life. If you're not a Christian yet, and you're still wondering about things, and you're still kind of on the fence in a way, I want to say this is a perfect opportunity that you have to, to sort of, in a non-creepy way, sit down at the table and just sort of eavesdrop and listen as to how Christians sort of talk about this concept, this idea of the blessed life. And you, and you can sort of soak up in a non-committal way what it means to follow after Jesus. But these words aren't written to you specifically. They're written to the people who have already handed their lives 
over to Jesus, that's going to make a difference, especially when he starts to say some objectively weird things like in the next verse. Verse 3, Jesus started his, again, world-famous Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And if you're like me, you're like listening in on this thing, and you're going like, um, Jesus, uh, preacher to preacher, not a great start. Like, what? it's just confusing. What are you even talking about right now? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is like the destitute. Poor in spirit are people without any answers. Poor in spirit are the people that are just like, I am at the end of myself. I have nothing else to offer. I have no more strength to give. That's poor in spirit. Blessed? Blessed are those who mourn, who weep, who grieve, who cry, and presumably have something to mourn and grieve and cry and weep over? Jesus blessed? I don't, I don't think so. How could you say that this is blessed? At, at best, Jesus, it seems like you're being insensitive and you're coming across a little tone deaf to your audience. At worst, Jesus, it sounds like you're just, you're picking on the little guy and you're making fun of him and you're rubbing in, rubbing it in even worse. How can you call the poor in spirit and those with something to mourn over blessed? I think it's probably fair to say that over the last 2,000 years, the word blessed has shifted and changed in meaning a little. So I don't think when we use the word blessed today that we're totally capturing how Jesus meant to describe the blessed life then. And the reason why I say that is oftentimes, right, this is more popular a while ago, but we see like the hashtag blessed thing around, right? And you start to see it starts, I do it too, it's fine, okay? We're all in safe place. And you see a sunset over the beach and you're like, awesome, man, right? Like hashtag blessed, that's great. But then it sort of like evolves on from there to the point where like after your, your meal, you find like three French fries in the bottom of the bag and you're like, hashtag blessed, right? That's not the life Jesus is talking about when he says blessed life. I think it's probably more fair to say that the, the blessed life that Jesus is describing, the life that you've always longed to live is a life, well, that he sort of describes in the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, when he, when he provides these two different stories. And I, I don't know, I just imagine that he knows guys that have lived these lives, and they're both building homes. But it's more than that, they're building lives. And one guy builds his life on the sand, and it's a beach house. And there's another guy who builds his life on a cement foundation. He, he, he poured something in the ground that's not going to go anywhere. And, and the rains come and the storm hits the side of the house, which is just an important side point that the rain and the storm will come and will strike your house. We know that as sure as the next breath that you're about to take. The rain and the storm, they will come and they will start to beat against the side of the house. And you're going to start to wonder at some point in your life, what is this thing built on anyway? And for the one guy who was built on sand, the rain came and it just washed his life away. But for the other guy with the cement foundation, but for the other guy who built his life on the solid rock 
It's like no matter what storm, no matter how much rain came, the, the house, his life held fast. Don't you want that kind of life? Isn't that the kind of life that you've always wanted to live? The kind of life where no amount of storm and no amount of rain could ever wash away and undermine. Don't you want the kind of life that, that, that's marked with this sort of centered approach or this, this serenity, this kind of contentment that, that seeps its way deep down into the very marrow of your bones and exudes out of you? that nothing could ever shake it, nothing could ever take it away. The kind of life that Jesus describes in John 10, 10, as I came that they may have life and a life to its fullest, to its weightiest, to its heaviest. This blessed life you've all, we've all longed to live. That's for Jesus, the blessed life. And it's got nothing to do with finding french fries in the bottom of the McDonald's bag. And Jesus is going to lay out this eight-step process for people who have already committed their lives to Jesus. This isn't the do attitudes, do this, and then you can be saved, and then salvation. It's not the do, it's the beatitudes. It's cheesy, but hopefully it's memorable. And Jesus is going to lay out these eight statements called the Beatitudes, and we're going to cover four of them together. The first two are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You know, the thing about being poor in spirit is that you don't have any answers, that you're, end, that you're at the end of yourself. And it's usually at the end of yourself that God tends to show up most clearly. Uh, author, Pastor Timothy Keller said that um, grace, the only requirement of grace is need. Grace simply requires a need. Grace requires nothing, just the need of it. But we want to fill that. We want to we offer something. We want to offer our giftedness. We want to offer our struggles. We want to offer our suffering, our experience. We want to offer something. And God says, no, no, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they know of their stark need. They're the first ones to ask for help, step one on this blessed, content, deeply serene, centered kind of life is to simply confess the need and to say, I don't have the answers. And then step two is blessed are those who mourn, which sounds, which sounds insensitive in tone deaf, deaf until, until you start to consider the holy work of Jesus. Jesus is the one who promised that death is never the last word. Jesus that promised that resurrection is the last word. Blessed are those who welcome the tears. Blessed are those who welcome the grief. Blessed are those who weep because they know in their weeping and in their tears that someday they'll be standing face to face with God himself and it will be him that wipes the tears from their eyes. And everything sad in this world will have come untrue. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted like no one could ever imagine comfort. Blessed and secure and content are they. And then Jesus takes a turn 
in the next line, and he says, but the meek, verse five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You get a few dudes around, and sorry to pick on dudes, but like, you think like meek. Doesn't that seem like a desirable trait to have? You know, a bunch of guys like gathered around a bench press and they're like, yeah, I'm going to get jacked. I'm going to get so big. I'm going to get meek, bro. You're like, what? What does meek mean? You know, just like start asking the guys in the circle. Meek means something like, meek you think like weak, like timid, like ineffective, like unambitious and just like meek. You know, in the violent culture that was the first century Middle East, you don't think of a timid weakling like that inheriting much of anything, let alone the literal earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus. Would it change your impression at all to, to discover, as I did earlier this week, that first century Greeks had a word to describe the process of taking a, a horse, a stallion, taking it on and domesticating it, taming it, bridling it, bringing it to the place where it could be kept on a farm and useful for tasks. I don't know anything about horses, but they're huge and they kind of freak me out. I'll just be honest. But the last thing that I would do when I start to think of the concept of like a stallion, even one on the petting zoo that I take my kids to, and I, the last thing that I like look at and I see a stallion like that is, is meek. But yet the first century Greeks, when they would describe the final product of that tamed and bridled horse, they would call it meek. Because meek does not mean weak. We, meek does not mean ineffective or unambitious. Meek means power and strength under control, under discipline. So a story of a, of a playground bully, uh, seventh grade, and this bully just gratuitously would just pick on other kids. Now, you know, you know the person on the playground that you remember, like the bully that would just push kids down and just be generously, generally mean, and nobody really knew why. You know, it, if you can't like think of the bully, like you might have been the bully, and that's okay. There's grace in church, but you should make a few phone calls about that. But like the bully, you know, he'd just push kids down. He'd be mean to kids. Snow would fall. He'd do like the face wash thing and like pelt them with, with snowballs on the way to school. And like nobody could figure out like why this bully was so mean. But there was another kid in the class that they called Big John. And, and Big John was like, nobody really knew his story, but he's a big fella. Right? And so rumors just started, just started spreading around Big John. And so they'd say things like, like, like Big John failed seventh grade three times. Big John, you know, his, mom, his mom makes him shave before school every day just so he can fit into middle school. Like Big John's dad is in prison upstate somewhere. Like Big John, right? All the rumors just swirled around his mysterious background. And Big John never said anything to dispel any of those rumors. One day the bully was picking on one of the seventh, one of the other seventh graders. It's just, again, being mean. And people can, didn't really know why. But it didn't really matter because Big John, what he does, Big John just goes there. He stands next to that little kid. And he says two words. He just says, stop it. Now he doesn't throw a punch. He doesn't push. 
He doesn't even yell, stop it. He just says sternly, stop it. And the bully does. Nobody is looking at Big John and saying, you're ineffective. You're weak. No, Big John is meek. He's got power and strength, but power and strength under control, under discipline. The, the second example of, of meekness, Jesus Christ, when he speaks into the nothing and he creates people. And, and then he steps into the creation that he made and his people pick up a hammer and spikes and they effectively staple him into a cross that he also made, by the way. And we ask, what held him there on that cross? Power. He had all the power in the universe and beyond. He had a legion of angels that would happily come to his assistance if he would but ask. He could turn those creations that he had made back into the dust that he formed them from in the first place. He had power, but what held him there wasn't his power. What held him on the cross was love. Power and strength, sure, but under control, under discipline, under love. Blessed are the, the meek. And then and then Jesus gives us probably the hardest one of the set. Blessed are those, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They, they don't necessarily have righteousness, but they hunger and they thirst for righteousness. What are you, what are you, what are you hungry for? Rhetorical question. You don't have to just shout it out. What do you, what do you long for? What do you want to see? Maybe it is a non-rhetorical exercise. And the people that you came here with today, uh, when you go home and you're in the car ride on the way home or maybe around the dinner table after church here, and you just ask them, people who know you, in the context of trust, ask, what do you long for? What do you hunger for? Like, like is it security? Is it comfort? Is it fame? Is it influence? Is it power? Is it authority? Is it success? Like, what do you, long, what do you hunger for? I did this thing, I've got kids, uh, five and eight. Uh, they're excellent sermon examples. And I sat, I sat them down at the table earlier this week, kind of knowing that this was coming. And I just like looked at them in the eyes and uh, the kind of stare that I wanted them to believe that I was like staring right into their soul, you know, like really. Okay, and we're sitting there uh, earlier this week in the morning and I'm like, kids, kids, what do you think I long for? Like, what am I hungry for? Like, what do I want? more than anything else in this world. And my oldest, Lily, she says, coffee. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> I took a sip. It was the morning time. <laughs> but that question of like, what do you long for? What do you want more than anything? Ask somebody this week. They might come up with a better answer. They might come up with a good answer of what you're hungering for or longing for. Righteousness, we think of as like this vertical uh, interaction. Righteousness back then, it also had this horizontal implications. We're right with God. We're also right with our neighbors. We're also right for our colleagues. We're also right with the people that we don't even like all that well. We're right with everybody. It's a, it's a safe, it's a, it, it's a peace-filled, peacemaker kind of life of righteousness. 
Next question. Is it possible that your appetite needs to change? I mean, is it possible that when you get that answer of righteousness, that the appetite somewhere along the way, it needs, it needs to shift around? I, um, when I got married, uh, I started this, this habit that I blame my wife for, and she's uh, started getting me on like eating popcorn, like while we like hang out, play a game or watch TV uh, in the evening time. And so I'm just like, well, you know, snacking at night is amazing. So I'm going to continue that, except for I'm going to do this on expert level and like upgrade the popcorn to nachos. And then I'm going to cover those with jalapenos and then cover that with sriracha and it's delicious. And like late at night before bed, I'm just going to stuff myself with the nachos and jalapenos and sriracha. And it was the blessed life. Hashtag. No, I'm just kidding. All right. I mean, it was, it was amazing while it lasted until um, our intern here at Encounter Church and uh, at 915, he was right here in the front and center, which was beautiful uh, for me. But uh, he came and he lived with us for a little while, uh, a couple summers ago. And, uh, and he got used to seeing up close the lifestyle <laughs> of Pastor Dirk. And at night, uh, he and I brought him in on this thing, and uh, we would just both enjoy these massive heaps of jalapeno sriracha nachos late at night. And it was delicious while it lasted, but then he started, I'd like to think in Christian companionship, pointing out a healthier lifestyle, he was relentlessly making fun of me for a while after that. So I'm like, something has to change. And for a year, something changed. And I'm like, that's got it. No more. I'm not going to do that thing anymore. And for a year it changed. And so we're hanging out with friends again late at night. And like the nachos come up with a sriracha, right? And with the jalapenos. And it's like, yes, you know, it's happening right there again. So I got like this, I got the plate in front of me, right? And it's like just my plate. Everybody else back off, get your own. It's been a year. And I look at this thing. And what do you think happened when I bit into it? I loved it so much. It was so delicious. You thought I was going to be like appetizing? No, no, no. It was so good. It's been a year. But the next morning, <laughs> regret. <laughs> the next morning I said, never again. It cannot happen again. The appetite shifted. Not the night, but the next day. Never, ever again. Listen, in all seriousness, God is ready to change an appetite. If you ask him, he's ready to change an appetite from serving self to serving him. He's ready to change an appetite from the accumulation of things and comfort to an appetite of righteousness with God and rightness with neighbor. He's ready to change an appetite. He's writing this to people. He's speaking to people now who are already in. This isn't a salvation kind of appetite change. These are people who are already committed to following after him. And so when you think about the way that your appetite for righteousness may need to change, I suggest that it's maybe one of two different ways. Because there's one of two ways that I think we step off from the path too often. The first way is this path of legalism. It is this path of, of, of rules without relationship. And the Bible shows us again and again and again, rules without relationship leads to rebellion every single time. Because when we lose a relationship with Jesus, when we lose a relationship with God, it just becomes a hollow set of rules and a faith that's not worth having. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion and turning away. Because why would it not? It's not a faith worth keeping. 
But the other side is this lukewarm kind of Christianity. This kind of Christianity that says that I'm not gonna give up, I'm not gonna give up, give in to anything in order to act on the faith that I have. And so if you think the last time that, that you prayed was dear Jesus, bless this food, or you think about the, the prayer of dear God, this traffic is terrible, it's not really a prayer. Prayer is getting to know the heart of God, just listening to him. And we call that practicing truth around here when we reorient our beliefs, our behaviors around the central defining point of Jesus. Whether it's legalism or lukewarm Christianity, ask him today, change my appetite for rightness. And ask him for that life to seep down deep into your very bones. Little bit like it did for Mabel. I wanna share this story with you, but rather than me try to paraphrase that, I just wanna share it from Tom himself. When he said the story of Mabel, when he went to the state-run convalescent hospital, it was not a pleasant place. It was large, it was understaffed, overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seemed dark. It smelled of sickness and stale urine. One particular day, he's walking down a hallway that he hadn't visited before and looking in vain for someone who was alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. The hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or in wheelchairs, looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare of white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. The hearing aid over her one ear, almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten away from cancer. There was discoloration and a running sore over her cheek. And it pushed her nose to one side and dropped one eye and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I had learned that she was 89 years old and she had bed, been here, bedridden, blind and deaf, alone for nearly 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and I said, here, a flower to you. Happy Mother's Day. And she felt, she picked up the flower up to her face and tried to smell it. And then she spoke, and much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I'm blind, you know. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought she could find some alert patients. I found one, I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary human being. One hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled into 10 different directions all at once. And this question occurred to me, 
What does Mabel think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week. So I asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty about thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately, I think of how good he's been to me. He's been awful good to me in my life, you know? I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. That's the kind of life, the kind of blessed life, the kind of life with contentment deep down into the very marrow of her bones, the kind of life you've always wanted to live. That's the kind of life built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I want that. Don't you want that? Let's pray together. Dear God, we ask you today to sweep through our lives and to take an inventory of our appetites. And God, in your grace, correct the places where we long for what ultimately will not fill us. But God, create in us an appetite for you and you alone. God, so that we can be filled with the hope of deep and lasting contentment, the hope that can only come from building our life on you, the solid rock, Jesus Christ, our living hope. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.